Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 1, 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Come on, that thing annoys me. There we go. Can't stand there when it's crooked like that. <clears throat> well, I want to once again thank the elders for insisting that I take a sabbatical this summer. My family and I are very thankful and more than a little nervous about it. Um, I would covet your prayers for us during this time. Pray that the Lord would meet us in a special way as we rest and seek his will for our family and our church over the next decade of ministry here in the Quad Cities. Um, and I want you to know, it's interesting, so... This text today, it really expresses my heart for you. Um, Paul's writing to Rome, and it's interesting, a church that he'd actually never been to, and he's expressing his heart and his love for them. And I feel like it could be, uh, I mean, it's just written for you guys, it's written from my heart to you guys. Um, I'm going to miss you. Um, I'm thankful to God, for every single one of you, for God bringing you to this church. And I count it as a great joy to be one of your pastors um, I know that there are a lot of people who think that since we don't get to speak personally very often, that maybe I don't know you or I don't care about you, but that just isn't the case. There is a unique bond that develops between a pastor and a preacher and his people, between a, a, sh a shepherd and his sheep. It's kind of weird. Like, even though I don't get to meet with you over coffee, a lot of you face-to-face -face, very often, the Lord in the most random times, the Lord brings your face, the Lord brings your name to my mind, the Lord brings your family to my mind, and I pray for you. When I'm on a long bike ride, or I'm going for a walk, or I'm, on, or I'm praying in the morning, or I'm sitting in the hot tub, what, your name, your face comes to my mind, and I, and I pray for you. Uh, even when you're not here, you're not here at the gathering, weirdly, I notice. I ask about you, you can ask my staff. As I'm, I don't know what happens. As I'm preaching, somehow my brain is registering people in seats, faces, and all these different things. And I'll be in staff meeting, and I'll be like, where's that? I didn't see that couple that usually sits front row in the back. And they're like, oh, they're there. What about that people that sit in the darkness in the way back corner? They don't think I see them, but I see them. Where were they? Right? And my, my staff's like, oh, no, I think they were there. I'm like, they weren't there. You know, I'm like, it's, it's, it's weird. And what, what's going on here is as I'm preaching the gospel and as you're listening to the gospel, there's something spiritual that's happening. There's some kind of relationship that's being developed. 
It's one of the reasons why online worship is a cheap copy of real in-person worship. When I have no idea who's watching online. I have no connection with them. Other than one couple was watching online today when I said that in the first service and they said, babe, get showered. We've got to get to the second service. I won't, they'll, they'll remain unnamed. But I, no, I don't want to do anything with it. So now what's interesting is the first seven verses of our text this morning show us that this was also true of the apostle Paul. Even though he had never been to Rome, he had a personal connection. You could say a spiritual connection to the Christians there. And that connection was created by two things, it seems. Number one, it was created by the gospel itself. We'll get into that more later. But also it was created and, and nurtured by his prayer for those people. It's my prayer that while I'm away, God would continue to do what he did in Paul and the Romans' hearts. He would continue to knit our hearts together like he did with Paul and the Romans through prayer and through our understanding of the gospel. That the gospel would continue to go deeper in us and unite us together by faith. Let me pray for us this morning and then we're going to belly up to the table here and dig into the first chapter of Romans Together, Father God, we thank you. I thank you for just the feast that we've already got to have. I thank you for the worship team. I thank you for the liturgy. I thank you for the constant reminder week in and week out that you accept us through your son, that you give us grace. Father God, we admit right now that we, we just need a lot from you. We lack wisdom. We lack knowledge. We lack insight. We lack strength to obey. We lack the power to, to just do the right thing. God, we lack so many things that we need you to help us. We need help from outside of us. And so would you be that today? Would your word be to us a light? Would we hear it? Would we believe it? Would we trust it? Would we, would we obey it? God, I, as a man, I still have sin remaining in me. And so I make mistakes and I say the wrong things and, and I can uh, lead people astray today. So would you help me and would you, would you let your people hear your words through me this morning? And anything that I say that's foolish or wrong, would you let that fall on deaf ears? Most importantly, God, would you be glorified through our time together? For your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 8. We're going to see, we're still in Paul's introduction. Paul loves to give long introductions to his letters, okay? And he's following kind of a similar pattern with most of his letters here. Look at verse 8. How's he begin? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. Now, this is a normal way for Paul to begin his letters, but we need to learn a few things from it. First, Paul, as a shepherd, as an apostle, he, listen, he relates to his people, not just personally, not just intimately, he relates to his people through Jesus Christ, okay? And so he doesn't flatter them. A lot of times we're writing letters, we might flatter someone, right? Hey, I miss you so much. I miss your smile, right? I miss our friendship. I miss your jokes. I miss being around you. I miss all your gifts. We're kind of like flattering people. Paul doesn't do that. Paul's not, you know, puffing them up and kind of fluffing them up here. He goes, you know what? 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He sees these folks as God's people first, bought and paid for by Jesus Christ and sent to the church by the Holy Spirit. So God himself handpicked these people and sent them to the church in Rome. So he doesn't praise them for their faithfulness directly. Rather, he praises them indirectly through Jesus Christ. So yeah, you guys are being faithful, but I'm, I praise God because he gave you the faith to be faithful. So he's praising God for their faithfulness. Do you see that? Rather than kind of puffing them up. In our language, we would say these people are an evidence of God's goodness and grace to Paul as an apostle. And you guys are an evidence of grace to me and to the elders as well. Look, let's keep going. Verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit look, in the gospel of his son. Now we saw last week that Paul said the gospel of God. Now he says the gospel of his son. And in verse 16, he's just going to call it the gospel. So in 16 verses, we've already got a triple-decker gospel sandwich going on here. All right, gospel of God, gospel of the Son, and gospel, and just, and just gospel. So that should whet our appetite for what he's trying to give us here, okay? It's going to be a lot of gospel goodness. He's using this word repeatedly to get their attention, get them focused on what's most important. As the title of Rob's sermon put it last week, the gospel is the good news that changes everything. Let's go verse 10. That, that, uh, I'll start in half of verse 9. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayer. So he's praying for these people. Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, now this is interesting. Paul wants to, he's never, he's never been to him. He's never seen him face to face, but he feels some kind of spiritual connection with them. He longs to be with them and he wants to show up to impart to them some spiritual gift. Now, what kind of spiritual gift is he talking about here? Are we talking about laying hands on them and giving them the gift of speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing or something like that? Well, we do see that happening in other places in the New Testament, but I don't believe that's what Paul is talking about here because of the context of these verses. Again, this is said right in the middle of a gospel triple-decker sandwich, and we're gonna, he's going to make it very plain here in, in a couple verses here. He goes on, verse 12, that is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So this imparting of a spiritual gift is meant to be a two-way street. He's going to do something, they're going to receive something, and both of them are going to be built up and encouraged by it. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now this is interesting. So Paul's like, guys, don't misinterpret why I haven't been to you. It's very easy for you to say, well, I never get to meet with a pastor. I've never sat down with a pastor. I've never said this. He must not like me. He must not be interested in me. No, no, no. Paul's like, I don't want you to be unaware. I've just been prevented from coming to you. We don't know what that was. It was probably gospel ministry in all different parts of the world. I'm preaching the gospel everywhere, guys. I want to be there. I just haven't been able to get there yet, but I'm praying and asking God to get me there. All right, now let's, verse 14. I am under obligation. Whoa, 
That's a, that's a word you don't relate with the gospel very often. I am under obligation. I am obliged. The actual Greek reads, I am in their debt. I am in your debt. I am indebted to. Indebted to who, Paul? Not to God. Look at this. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, how is Paul a debtor to the Greeks, barbarians, to the wise, and to the foolish? It's interesting, first and foremost, that Paul never mentions the Jews here. He's speaking strictly to Gentiles, which is mainly what the church in Rome now is made up of, is Gentiles. Why, how is Paul a debtor to Gentiles? Well, remember, when God radically saved Paul, he changed his entire mindset, his entire worldview, his entire way of seeing everything in a moment. Paul, as a Jew was convinced that God was only interested in the Jews. God himself was the God of the Jews. To the Jews, God had given the covenants. To the Jew, God had given the law. To the Jews, God had given the prophets. What did the Gentiles have? In Paul's view, nothing but idolatry. Nothing but demon worship. The Gentiles were pagans who served false gods. But then one day, Paul met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. We're going to read this again because I want it to be ingrained into our mind. Acts chapter 9, verses 1, and we're going to go all the way to verse 16. But Saul, Saul was also known, so Saul, Saul and Paul, the same thing, he's known, known by both names. But Saul, still breathing threats. So as a Jew, Paul rejected Jesus Christ, he hated Christians. And he wanted them destroyed. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, the way is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This guy is so passionate about his Jewish faith. And he's so convinced that Jesus is a false prophet. He's went to the high priest to get papers that gives him permission to go in prison and then eventually murder Christians. Verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, this is a big uh-oh moment, okay? This is where you realize I've been living my life the wrong way, okay? I've made some major mistakes with my life. I'm on my way to persecute these people for following this dead Jew, and the dead Jew just talked to me, okay? You're gonna have some serious thoughts in this moment, right? Who are you? Jesus. And he's like, oh, no right? The dead guy. Yeah, the dead guy who didn't stay dead. He, he resurrected and then he was seen by over 500 witnesses and then he ascended to the right hand of God. From the right hand of God, Jesus is now speaking to one of his most hated follow or people and he's like, now you're on my team, okay? Now this is, this is where we're going. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. I love how Jesus didn't ask Saul what he would like him to do for him. How would you like me to come into your heart, Saul? Huh? What would you like me to do for you? Here's your lamp. Just rub it right there and ask, oh, a nice little family? Okay, I'll give it to you. Oh, a bigger house? Okay. He's like, go to the city. I'll tell you what to do. Saul's like, okay. Watch this. Go to the city. I'll tell you what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he was blinded by whatever, seeing the glory there. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was out without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple, so here we go, another Christian at Damascus named Ananias. Now he's on, he's on Jesus's team, right? The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now Ananias knows Saul. Saul's reputation has preceded him. So Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So he's like, Jesus, he has permission to put me in prison. And you want me to go lay my hands on him? Uh, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Here's what I want you to hear. I want to think about this. Why was Paul in debt to the Gentiles? Because if it hadn't been for the Gentiles, Paul might never have been saved. God's mission, God's love for the Gentiles preceded God's call on Paul's life. So God's mission preceded Paul's salvation. God had a mission to save the Gentiles through Jesus, and God chose Paul to proclaim that. He chose Paul specifically here, quote, to be the chosen instrument of his to carry his name before the Gentiles. So in a very real way, Paul sees that chain of events there, and he feels indebted to the Gentiles. He feels a weight upon him an indebtedness, a burden on him to go as far as he possibly can to reach as many Gentiles as he possibly can. Now, the second way Paul is indebted to these Gentiles, we see in the words barbarian and in the contrast between wise and foolish. Barbarian is a Greek word that means stutterer or babbler. Um, it was a term it's a little bit of a derogatory term, but it was a term for anyone who spoke a weird or unsophisticated language. So Greek-speaking people, when they heard other languages, it sounded like they were saying bar, 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 bar. And so that's what they called them barbarians. That's where you get barbarian from. Greek society at this time was the most sophisticated in the world. You had the philosophers, the Epicureans, and the Stoics. The Greeks had the best educational system in the known world. And Paul had been a direct beneficiary of that. 
He had went to the best Jewish schools of his day, and he learned to interact with the greatest thinkers of the Roman world. Paul's letters, sermons, and speeches interacted with the ideas of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. In Acts chapter 17, we see Paul stand before the Areopagus in Athens and partake in public debate and apologetics with some of the best thinkers in Greece. He even quotes some of their own poets and philosophers in order to point them to Jesus. Paul was a well-educated genius, all right? He was a public intellectual of the highest order of the day, and he was also really aware and really proud of that fact. But when God called Paul, he didn't just call him to rub shoulders and preach the gospel to the elites of his society. He also called him to go to the babblers, those who were foolish in the world's eyes. To put this in context, imagine being valedictorian of your high school and getting a full ride to go to Harvard Divinity School where you complete your undergraduate and, and then you apply and you get in to get your master's in divinity from Cambridge University. From there, you go get a PhD in theology from Princeton. You are likely expecting upon graduation to find yourself in a very lucrative career in one of the great cities of the world, interacting with big ideas and cultural elites and eating at fancy restaurants and rubbing shoulders with the sophisticates of Manhattan or L.A. And upon graduation, you send out your resume. All the big churches you can find, all the cool cities you can find. Does it got a beach? Does it got a mountain? Does it got cool coffee shops? That's what I'm looking for. You send it out. And you only get one reply. And that one reply is from some podunk town in the backwoods of Alabama. That's what it was like for the Apostle Paul to be called to go to the barbarians and to the foolish. On the surface, it was a humiliating call. It was a shameful call calling. But this is the hidden gift of God that when unpacked left Paul feeling incredibly indebted to the less educated Gentiles. See, his call humiliated him in such a way that it revealed to him that salvation was indeed all 100% a total gracious gift of God and not a result of his works. Salvation was not just for the smart, not just for the well-educated, not just for the put together, not just for the connected, not just for the elite. Salvation was a free gift of God given to anyone who would believe. Yes, even those pagan babblers over there with the idols in their house. This was a call from God that brought shame into his life that would lead him to discover grace. And I believe it's something we desperately need to interact with as a Christian living in our society today. 
On one hand, our society tells us there's nothing to be ashamed of. Go do what you want to do with your body. Go sin however you want to sin. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And then out of the other side of their mouth, they go, you should be ashamed for what you believe. You should be ashamed to believe that in a God that created things and you didn't evolve. You should be ashamed that you believe there's a difference between boys and girls. You should be ashamed that you think Jesus Christ is the one way to salvation. You should be ashamed that you believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. You should feel ashamed for nothing sinful. You should feel ashamed for everything you believe. How are we going to live? Paul tells us. And he also tells us, this is the gift I'm trying to give you. <laughs> this is the gift that we need. It comes through the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 15. Look, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here we finally see the spiritual gift that Paul was longing to give to the Romans. He wanted to preach the gospel to them personally. I think this is so interesting. Because these people have already heard the gospel. He's already thanked God for their faith. They've, they're already believers. They've got their own elders that are preachers. Paul's never been to them. Paul's like, I can't wait to get to you because when I get to you, I'm going to give you a gift and you're going to receive that gift and that gift is going to bless me. And they're like, oh, what's the gift? It's the gospel. They're like, had that one. He's like, no, there's more. There's more. There's insights that you don't see yet. There's aspects you haven't grasped. There's depths you haven't plumbed yet. We got a lot of work to do, and it's all coming through the gospel. That's exactly what I hope to do here this morning. I know the majority of you have heard the message of the gospel over and over, and yet I believe there are depths of the gospel that we have not yet plumbed. And if I preach it, and if you receive it by faith, we will both reap a harvest that will encourage us and bless us and minister us to us this morning and give us faith to sustain us throughout this next week. And we're going to do that by drilling down and studying the last two verses of Paul's introduction to Romans. Now, as Rob said last week, these two verses are Paul's thesis statement for the whole book. So he gives his thesis statement, and now he's going to build out his argument and prove it for the rest of the book. I believe if we can get a good grasp of these two sentences here this morning, we will never be the same again. Let's go to verse 16. <clears throat> for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Hmm. Now, how would you react if you had your PhD from Princeton, probably a good amount of student debt, you have told your friends, you have told your family, everybody's, you are on the up, you are up and coming. You are the future of the church. You are the future. You're going to crush it. You're going to kill it. And you say, you know what? I can't wait. I'm going to London. I'm going to LA. I'm going to New York City. You've been in all, educated in all these elite institutions of the world, and the only job offer you got was in Kennedy, Alabama, at a small church that meets in a double-wide trailer. Well, that's kind of specific. Yeah, I've been to that church. That's why I said it. My dad was born and raised in Kennedy, Alabama, and I've been to that church. I've been to the church that had one guy for his, the whole worship team, and he sang multiple parts by himself. 
My mom threatened my life before we got it. We went in. She said, listen, it's a small church. They don't have much. You better not laugh. You better not laugh or you're going to whoop them when you go home. I said, all right, fine, mom. That guy <laughs> started singing. Then he switched keys and sang in a different part. And I looked down at my lo- and my mom was, my mom was laughing. And then we all, we all lost it. Okay. Imagine, right? In this trailer, you can't even nail your diplomas on the wall in this trailer because the nails will stick through, right? You get called to this podunk place. How are you going to start your sermon? How are you going to start your letter here? Paul says, I am not ashamed of this, of the gospel. Now think about it. He's saying this because he's ashamed. He's feeling shame. He's tempted to feel shame. How would you feel about getting this double-wide trailer church? Would you post it on Facebook? What angle can I make this look a little bigger? Right? When your friends call you and say, where'd you land? Where'd you land? Not even Tuscaloosa, man. Not even Tuscaloosa. No, I'm in Kennedy, Alabama. Mm -mm. You'd be ashamed. This brings up a good question. What makes a person feel Shame. Google defines shame as a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. Here's a couple examples. A boy brags to his class that he is the fastest in the class. He brags and brags day after day pointing at the chubby kids, how slow they are. Look at my shoes. Built for speed. He challenged them one day all to a race. We're going to race around the school during recess. The boys line up. The girls gather around. The whole school is watching. Teachers are watching. They call out, ready, set, go. And the braggart trips and falls on his face at the starting line, is left in the dust by everyone, even The chubby kid finishes ahead of him. He gets dead last and feels utterly ashamed. Here's another example. You want to run for student body president. You're passionate about having an opportunity to represent your classrooms and make classmates and make a difference in the culture of your school. You run a great campaign and get elected and you are on top of the world. The day comes where you get to go before the school to give your first speech in front of all of your classmates and teachers. You get up to the lectern, you completely freeze up and can't remember your speech. You can't even read the words on the page. The awkward silence is deafening. You begin to hear whispers and murmurs and laughter feel like dying. You're a total failure. And you are, you are ashamed of yourself. I could go on and on with examples like this. No doubt you have experienced the feelings of shame sometimes in your life. Oftentimes, these are the most formative moments of our life. The moment you looked the fool. It was your moment to shine 
and you failed. We might rehearse these and replay these moments in our heads over and over and over again. They might debilitate us and keep us from ever risking ourselves again, or they might motivate us to work harder and be faster and attack our weaknesses so that we'll never feel that way again or ever fail that way again. Either way, feelings of shame are deeply powerful and one of Satan's chief weapons he uses against us. question is, how do we beat shame? How do we disempower shame in our lives so that it doesn't control us? See, most of us have felt shame at some point in our life, and we either try to avoid potentially shameful experiences. We do that. See, if you don't want to be shamed, all you have to do is do nothing, say nothing, go nowhere. Or we try to become so competent at something that we never make a mistake. We, you know, we just want to be so good at this thing. I want to become such a good public speaker that I never misspeak. Here's what's interesting. Both of these tactics are self-focused. They are attempts to build a self Righteousness, either by avoiding shame or becoming so good that I conquer my shame and I never make a mistake. Both of them are an attempt to build a self, a righteousness that can withstand shame. I'll never race again so I won't feel slow. And I will run every day until I'm the fastest in the state are both entirely focused on the self and our attempts to keep or create a self-righteousness. And both of them won't beat shame. Because eventually, even if you're all alone by yourself, you're going to fail your own standards. You're going to fail yourself and feel shamed. You're going to be ashamed of what you haven't done. You're going to be ashamed of who you haven't talked to. You're going to be ashamed of where you haven't gone. And if you're working hard and you're trying to be the best and you're doing all these things, you're still going to make mistakes. You're still going to fail. You're still going to misspeak. You're still going to choose wrongly. And then because your whole identity is built on how good and how omnicompetent you are, you're going to be crushed by shame. You are controlled by people's opinion of you. Listen, that's not the way Paul beat shame, and that's not the way Jesus beat shame. And that's not the way Christians are meant to beat shame. You can't beat shame by looking at yourself. You only double down on it. You become more aware of all the ways that you could be ashamed. You beat shame, here it is, listen, by walking through shameful circumstances with the power of the gospel. It's the only way to beat shame. Here's how the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus 
be changed. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? He gives us, not only is he our substitute, he's also our, our example. So how did Jesus beat shame? That's how we should be set shame, okay? Here's how Jesus beat shame. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, okay, I have a long-term vision. There's joy out there. There's, there's a prize at the end. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross that gave me endurance, long-term vision gave me endurance in the moment. Look, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus get through shame? He despised it. That's a fascinating word. What does that mean? Here it is. It means when shame tempted him, when shame came in and weakened his heart's resolve and tempted him to give up on God's plan of salvation, God's right way, right? He said to shame, shame, I despise you. Shame, I will not give in to you. Shame, you will not control me. Shame, you are not my master. Listen to this. Shame, you may completely shame me right now, but I will not obey you or follow you or give in to you. I despise you, shame, and I will not let you rule me. Walking through shame, despising shame, focused on the end. How could he do that? How could we do that? Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him. Shame was stripping him. Stripping him of every earthly support that he had. His friends, and his moment of weakness, his friends ran. His friends turned his back. You know what happens. You're going through a tough time. If you got your friends, if you got your family, you can make it through. And in Jesus' tough time, shame took his friends away. He said, I despise you, shame. I'm still going forward. His reputation as a rabbi, as a teacher and a wise man, was he was humiliated. They said, this is a false teacher. He's not king of the Jews. He's a heretic. He deserves death on a cross. His reputation, shame ripped it away. He's a public spectacle that said, don't follow this man. His decency was stripped from him. As they stripped him naked. We want, you know, all the paintings, you know, we paint and all the pictures that we have, we don't want, we're at risk of being vulgar, so we put a robe around him, but he had no robe. Jesus was hanging naked on the cross where often they would soil themselves from all the torture and pain and, and the hours upon the cross. This was a public spectacle meant to humiliate him, meant to bring shame. This was not an, an effective form of death. You could just behead someone. This was meant to tell the world, this man is shameful. Don't follow this man. Jesus' comfort, his own security and comfort in his own flesh was stripped from him as they crucified him. 
everything that Jesus would have looked to to heal himself from shame was taken from him at the end of his life. So how did he not capitulate to such shame? How did shame not cause him just to tap out? Hebrews 12.2 says, He set his heart not on the supports of the present, but on the joy of the future, where he would very soon sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. He had a future glory waiting for him that pulled him through the shame. It pulled him. It kept him faithful. He had his eyes locked on the right hand of the throne of God. He had his eyes locked on to that future joy, and it pulled him through shame. Jesus beat shame by despising the shame while he walked through the shame and looking past the shame to the throne room of God. That's how we get through shame. Paul learned this same lesson. Not only did Jesus say in Acts chapter 9, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for me. He then walked it out. Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11, Paul says this. For we are the circumcision. Paul now here is glorying in his history, his family, family and religious lineage, that he was a Jew. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I put no confidence in earthly supports. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. I got plenty of accolades. Let me name you a few. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecuted their church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's saying this. It's, it's so funny because he's saying it in humility, but it's the most arrogant thing he could possibly say. He's saying, I'm the best man I know. I obeyed the law. Nobody could keep up with me. I'm the fastest runner. I'm the best speaker. I'm the smartest guy in the room. All of that, blameless. Look what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss. Rubbish, garbage for the sake of Christ. Jesus is more important to me, is more valuable to me then all the earthly supports that I had, all the education, all the success, all the esteem, all the money, Jesus is worth more to me. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, surpassing worth, more value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. My reputation is gone. My comfort is gone. My flesh is gone. I bear in my body the scars that show that I belong to Jesus Christ. My money is gone. My plans for my life are gone. And I count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Listen to this. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Look, and be found in him. Here it is. What's, what's, the, what's the big thing that he's getting from this that, that's worth throwing everything away? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, this is amazing. Shame backfired. Shame brought me through a difficult season and it brought shame upon me, but it gave me a freedom in Christ that I never would have had unless I felt that shame. And I counted all as loss. You know when he's going through it, he's not like, ooh, another beating, let's go. Right? Oh, I get kicked out of the city, stoned again. Oh, this is great. No, but as he goes through them and he sees what Christ does on the inside of him and he sees how, he gets, how God has been faithful to him through all of that and now he understands that his righteousness is not in his own ability to manage his shame. His righteousness comes from outside of himself, from Jesus Christ, that this is, now he looks back and says, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. And you know what? I am indebted to the Gentiles. Thank you, Gentiles. Listen, shame is one of the devil's oldest tricks. You see it in the garden? There's a reason why they were, in the beginning, naked and not ashamed. And then they hid from God right after that. Shame. Satan thinks that if he can get you to feel ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of Jesus, ashamed of his words, he can control you. He could keep you on the sidelines, afraid to share your faith. He could keep you so self-focused that you're doing everything possible to never need Jesus, never need to be saved from someone outside of yourself. The devil keeps you performing, running all over town from event to event, trying to earn a righteousness that says to yourself, I have nothing to be ashamed of, I'm good. That, my friends, is not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that you can find a righteousness outside of yourself. A righteousness that is alien to you. It comes from another and is a free gift of grace. Back to Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Paul's saying, I've been so shamed and Christ has been so good to me in the midst of it and I've seen the glory of the Lord that surpasses all of this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Listen to this. There is no other way to be saved on this planet. Every single person is in opposition to God and there's no way to be justified. There's no way to be made right with God except through the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be saved and the gospel is the only thing that saves. Why do we act stupid? People say, what's wrong with our society? It's clear what's wrong with our society. We've lost the gospel. We aren't Christian. We have these horrible circumstances and these 
Active shooter situations and all this stuff and people, well, we want to blame this and we want to blame that. You trace it back and every single one of them, you find a home where there's no gospel. There's usually no father in that home either. What causes that? No gospel. We want to save our, our society? The gospel is the only thing that'll do it. And all the intellectual elites of our society are trying to get together, the smartest minds in the world, and they're saying, what can hold this society together? What can hold us together? Nothing but the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it. Everybody makes fun of it. I'm not ashamed of it. And now, 2,000 years later, we should say, go ahead, Paul, because it's going to work out pretty well. You're going to take over Rome in a few years, Paul. Rome's going to fall, and the barbarians are coming and sack it. And it's going to, guess what? And then you're going to start the Holy Roman Empire. And then guess what? Christendom's going to spread in throughout Europe. And then guess what? There's going to be this country called the United States of America, and they're going to found it on Christi- Christianity. And guess what? There's going to be billions of Christians in a, in a couple hundred years, Paul, right? 2,000 years later, billions of Christians. Guess what, Paul? You shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. It's still producing fruit now. Goodness gracious, I'm going to kill myself this last sermon. I got to. It's nigh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Listen, teenagers, this is your biggest temptation. All of us in here, but specifically temptations. They want you to be ashamed. If they can shame you, they can shut you up. If they can shame you, they can steal your future from you. You're afraid to call a boy a girl. You're afraid to say that the truth is the truth. In our society today, if you can't walk through shame, you won't be walking with Christ very long. Everybody feels totally free to post whatever they want online, except for Christians. Better not post that. You'll be a bigot. Better not post that. You're closed-minded. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. Now listen to this, verse 17. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul realized He could not build his life on his own righteousness. He needed it from outside of himself that came through Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. Listen, you can hide from shame. You can try to outwork shame. You're just going to experience more shame. The only way to get victory over shame is to get a righteousness that comes from God. So when God looks at you, he's looking through the lens of Jesus. Literally. This is a bad illustration, but if you put on pink sunglasses, everything kind of takes a hint of pink. When God looks at you, he puts on the sunglasses of Jesus Christ and sees you through Jesus Christ. So when you sin and you confess it, that sin is crucified with Christ. When you need comfort, you have comfort of the Holy Spirit. That comes because Jesus obeyed perfectly on your behalf and sent the Holy Spirit to come into you. Every blessing that comes your way comes through Jesus Christ. Every curse that is avoided that should come your way is because of Jesus Christ. You stand in Christ and God relates to you as if Jesus was standing here. So when some fool tries to shame me, why do I care? That's the 
surpassing power of the gospel. I gotta be comfortable being shamed and I gotta look past this to the glory that's mine in Christ Jesus and that will pull me through the shame. And when I'm on the other side of it, I'll look back and thank God for it. Righteousness that comes by faith. By believing Jesus did what we cannot do. He obeyed God perfectly. He ran every race. He won every race. He was the smartest guy in the room. He was the holiest guy in the room. He never sinned. And he took your place on the cross for your sins so that he could give you that righteousness so now you could walk in newness of life, no longer a slave of sin. And you could see the face of God. You could dwell in the face of God in eternity. All of that's yours by faith. So if you've never taken that by faith, I pray that you would. I pray that the Father would give it to you, even the faith to believe this morning. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for your grace. If you were not gracious, we would all be doomed. We deserve nothing but death and hell. But you give us life and life more abundantly. You are the hope of the world. That is not trite. That is not a cliche. You are the only one that can save. And the gospel is the only thing with the power to do it. Father, I pray that you would change individuals. I pray that you would change households in this room. That you would change missional communities. That you would change our church. That you would change our city. That you would change our nation. We desperately need you. And you are all we need. Father, for all the believers in this room, we're going to come partake of the Lord's Supper on the night that you were betrayed, the night that your friends left you. You sat down with them and you broke the bread of the Passover celebration and you changed the meaning and you said, this bread is broken and it's my body broken for you. And you took the cup and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of the blood of the covenant, and it's spilled and poured out for the remission of sins. And you told us to partake in this meal, this meal of grace, as often as we come together until you return, and this meal would proclaim your death, the shamefulness of your death. We have nothing to be ashamed of because you beat death. You were resurrected. And so, Father, we come together as a body this morning and we eat and we drink in honor of you and we ask that you would communicate that grace to us. Communicate, feed our souls this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.